0: Let me add my welcome to Johnny's. My name is Ian, and I'm part of the staff team here at the church. To kick us off, I'm going to pray, and then we can dive into what we're looking at tonight. Oh most holy God, let us remember your grace. Let us know your power and stand on your promises. Open up your scripture to us, and ha- let us have a greater understanding of who you are. And let us leave tonight with a greater love for the Lord Jesus. Pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. So over the next three Sunday nights, we're going to be looking at the topic of prayer. Looking at how God's King and how he prays and what we can learn from this and how this can shape our own prayer life. We're looking at at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and that's on page 259 in your Bibles. Page 259. But first, let me ask you, when you hear that we're doing a series on prayer, how does that make you feel? When you think about your own prayer life, how do you feel about it? Because when I was preparing this week for the sermon, I wrote a list of some of my own thoughts on prayer. And in all honesty, it was written with a slight sense of guilt. Something I don't do enough, don't give as a priority, something I should probably just try harder at. But there's other things too. I mean, sometimes I'm not even sure what to pray. As I sit over my bowl of cereal in the morning, nothing comes to my mind as to what to pray for. I just can't think of what to pray. Or I remember my first ever prayer meeting and I watched the news and I heard all the community gossip, what was going on, and I thought, I'm ready to pray. And then the man before me stood up and prayed all my prayer points away and I had nothing left to say. Well, what we have in 2 Samuel 7 is genuinely really helpful and my hope is that it shows us that there is always something we can be praying for. There is always something to pray for. There is always something we can be praying. And tonight I'm going to read verses 1 to 17 and that is God's promises to David. And once I've read that and gone through it a wee bit, I'll read David's prayer, which is verses 18 to the end. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time tonight. Because to understand David's prayer in verses 18 to 29, we have to understand the context of what is being said and understand the promises that are made to David. So let's read them verses 1 to 17, follow along, page 259. Now, when the king lived, that is David, in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do that is all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to David, my servant David, Thus the Lord of hosts, I took you, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. Now in the light of the Old Testament, this is a huge promise. Imagine you're flying into a new city and you're kind of flying in at night and there's little lights. This would be a bright spotlight in the Old Testament. But as you read it, the narrative starts relatively calm. You can almost picture David and Nathan on their roof, maybe after having some dinner, sipping a cup of coffee or tea, and David turns to Nathan and says, verse two, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. I have this big palace. It doesn't feel right that God is still in a tent. The tent being the tabernacle that had been his dwelling since the Israelites' defeat of Egypt in Exodus. And Nathan says, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. Then verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And God speaks to David through Nathan. He says, I have always traveled with my people. You do not need to do anything for me. But sit down, David, and I will do something for you. Essentially, David says to God, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, 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 no. I will build you a, house. a household is this play on words. He says, I am going to make a dynasty that will last forever from you. He promises that in David's family line, there will be a king who will rule forever. And we know that from the following chapters, this is not his direct sons. But someone in his lineage is going to come. And in the scheme of the Bible unfolding, this is huge. This is another step in God's plans and promises. It's another clue to solving the mystery of how God is going to save his people. A clue in God's plan for redemption. I want, to see, I want you guys to see just how important that is in understanding the Bible as a whole. And understanding what David prays in verse 19. So to help me, I've got a PowerPoint. This will be brief and I hope it opens our eyes to God's working and actually help us shape our prayers better. Firstly, I have to apologise that I'm kind of still in camp mode, so this is what I use at camp. But I think it still helps us to understand the steps and put together the big pieces of God's truths. So this is the Bible timeline. And we are in Kings just now, in 2, 2 Samuel 7 But starting at the beginning, Genesis 1, we have creation. We have this perfect creation. Relationship with God and man. Perfect harmony. Then Genesis 3, we have the Garden of Eden and the fall in the Garden of Eden, where Satan tempts Adam and Eve and they disobey God and sin enters the world. But God makes a promise. In this Genesis 3, there is a promise to Satan that from Eve's offspring, Someone will come to crush the head of the serpent, end evil, destroy Satan's power. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That from Eve's offspring, the devil's head was going to be crushed. Then as you travel through Genesis, we have a world in turmoil, We have the story of Noah, and it's this big scope of the world and the destructive power of sin until Genesis chapter 12, where we have where the Bible zooms in on one man and his wife, Abraham. And essentially the rest of the Old Testament follows this one family's one man's family. Genesis follows the family, then the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament follows the nation that comes from this family, all the way through the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. Now, Abraham is given promise too. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago as we finished off the series in Joseph. The Lord says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you and all the families of the Earth, all the families of the Earth, shall be blessed. So Abraham was promised through his offspring, his family line, that a land, a people and a blessing were going to come for the whole world. So you have Genesis 3, the promise of the serpent crusher, and now we're told that in Abraham and through his offspring, there will be blessing to the ends of the Earth. Curse of Eden, blessing through Abraham's land. So the picture of how this curse is going to be reversed becomes slightly clearer, but it's still a bit foggy. And from this, we have the Exodus. We have the arrival in the Promised Land, the time of the judges' rule in the Promised Land, and then the time that we are in just now in Kings, with many other markers along the way until we come to the New Testament and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and finally finishing in the new creation And I mention all of this because from Genesis chapter 3, we have a huge problem of broken relationship because of sin. But we have promises of how God is going to reverse this. And throughout the Old Testament, we have promises or covenants made by God that help us sharpen and focus how this restoring of creation from the beginning to the end to the new creation and the restoring of us is going to take place. And I say all of this to help us understand what is promised to David. Because what is promised to David is so huge. It sharpens what the people of God were waiting for. And to promise to David is a kingly line forever. So let's have a look at verses 9 to 13. I'll have them on the screen as well. I will make of you, this is God to to David. I will make of you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's promised a great name, a people planted on a land where there will be rest, no conflict, and a house, a kingly line. The promise given to Abraham that meant blessing for the whole world was now being sharpened. It's kind of like a magnifying glass in the sun, just the heat and focus is becoming stronger. The promise of curse reversing of land, of people, of blessing, of rest, was going to come through a king in the line of David. God promised David a king who would rule forever. That his kingdom would never end. It wouldn't be stopped by death, verses 12 to 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, David, with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. Even after you die, David, this promise will carry on. It won't be stopped by sin. The shoddy kings who follow directly after David and his lineage, verse 14 and 15. God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. His steadfast love will not depart. There was not necessarily a constant dynasty that we're looking at, because we see that it falls apart very rapidly after David. But someone in his genealogy, somebody in his lineage would be this forever king. And even time itself will not stop this promise. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever just rings through this. This promise is never going to stop. And we stand this side of the cross, knowing who these promises are true in, the first gospel writer opens with this one little line that has a huge Old Testament punch The help us know exactly who it's about. Matthew 1, verse 1 starts his genealogy like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Son of David and son of Abraham. The promises for their offspring are fulfilled through Jesus we know that this promise was going to come through Jesus, a land, a people, a blessing, rest, a king, a kingdom forever. The restoration of that creation that is broken in Genesis 3. We know that that new creation is that new kingdom will have one king and that king will be Jesus. so we've done verse 1 to 17. I had to do it very briefly and very quick and I apologise for that. But if you remember, our topic to cover tonight is prayer. So I think this helps us though. Verse 1 to 17 helps us see what is promised. And we're going to see how David responds to God's promise and how we can respond and model our prayers better. If you see on the back of the service sheet, I've split it into verse 18 to 24 and verse 25 to 29. It's David's praise and David's promise. And as I read it, just sense the tone that David has in his prayer. How he feels about this promise that comes from God. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God, You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. (sighs) That first half was heavy, man. right? This this half will be far more application heavy and far more looking at prayer than the first half. But did you feel verse 18 to 24, the tone of David's prayer? He's almost jubilant. I've written here that David's humble, amazement. I don't think that covers it. He's like he's gobsmacked. He's almost picking his jaw up off the ground, absolutely dumbfounded by God's grace. I hope you got that vibe. David is gobsmacked by God's grace, undeserving goodness of God shown to David. He's absolutely gobsmacked. I mean, look at it. Verse 18, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Verse 20, what more can David say to you? Verse 23, who is like your people Israel? David speaks of his undeserving nature in God's lavish graces to what he has done and what he has promised. And David does this, he sings, he prays the praises of God looking at his past grace and the promised grace of God. Verse 18 again, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Calvin says of this, As if preserving David from a thousand deaths was altogether too trivial, Yahweh had committed, God had committed himself to a forever promise regarding David's dynasty. As if preserving David from a thousand deaths was altogether too trivial. It's not as if David has been hard done by God, has been with him. And saved him numerous times and risen to king of Israel. And so David looks back in his life and says, Who am I that I deserve this grace that you have shown me? Who on earth am I that I deserve this? Why am I deserving? I was a shepherd, I was a nobody. I was the last of eight sons. And he doesn't just end by looking backwards, he points forwards to God's promised grace. Verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. You have promised a forever king to bring about God's promises. And the end of the verse it says, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. It's kind of a confusing sentence But a commentary I was reading that helped me said that for this is instruction for mankind is better or more helpful to read as such is human destiny. Such is human destiny, which I think helps us see what it is. That now that God has said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It's written in history, future, it's written in his story. And that's that. Such is human destiny. This will take place. And he moves on again. There is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard from our ears. Verse 23 to 25, it's you did great things. You redeemed, you established yourself to your people to be your people forever. But we see that David completely humbles himself before God. There is no God Like God, past and future, secure, past and future, undeserved grace upon grace, past and future grace, riches undeserved, goodness, God's goodness to unworthy people. Do you feel that? Do you feel the astonishment of David in this? Who am I, O Lord God? And I wonder as we read this, as we look at our own prayer life, Do we pray like this? I say this holding myself at the very forefront. Do we pray like this? I think part of our problem with prayer is that we forget how good God's grace is to us. We become used to it. It's just a bit bland, a bit vanilla. It's just a fact. But it's so much more than that. I'm struck by this when I meet someone who has recently become a Christian someone who has recently come to know Jesus as their saviour and at points you have trouble shutting them up at points you struggle to get into the conversation but who can blame them they found life hope purpose relationship with God They just tell you time after time all the things they're reading and all the things they're learning of who God is. They're the first to church, last to tidy up at every prayer meeting and are desperate for their friends to know Jesus because they've just found him. Why do we lose that? Have we become so used to the God of eternity? Normalized the supernatural? Are we over the hype of God? Why is it that God somehow becomes just norm? When does the scandal of God's grace just become ordinary? Obviously, we have not been spoken to and told our offspring will be king forever. However, we have been shown unbelievable, unmerited grace upon grace. The gospel that we believe to be true and know to be true is utterly scandalous. God so loved us, he sent his son despite what we do and despite what we have done. So how should we pray? The scandal of the Bible's message is that God saved us despite ourselves. We should be saying like David, who am I that you would do this? Who am I deserving of this relationship with the Almighty? This astounding message, this amazing grace. We are bystanders, lazy bystanders in the saving of us. Who am I? What more can Ian say? What more can you say to this God? You have shown mercy and grace, saved our lives from death to life. There's a prayer point right there. Brought to life in relationship with God. Amen. Able to pray, won from our former captor, rescued from our slavery. Amen. Showing hope, released from the bondage that was leading us down a nowhere track. I mean, we should be able to look at God's grace to us so far and pray like David. With utter praise, utter thanksgiving to God. And like David, we don't just pray for past Grace, we pray for promised grace that saved us from the bondage, the slavery, the sin, the death, to life, relationship, and eternity with our creator and maker. We have been promised so much more. We stand further down the promised promise timeline of history and see these promises realized in Jesus we see so much more than David saw. That's how we can pray. Thankful because we are lazy bystanders in the saving of ourselves. God is the prime mover in all of history. Who am I, O Lord God? I was actually thinking when we're singing the song tonight, great things he has taught us, great things he has done, and greater rejoicing through Jesus the Son, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our worship. When Jesus we see. That we've been saved by grace. And there's grace upon grace. Where we will see Jesus in the new creation. Let that be what fills our prayers. And so David waxes lyrical about God's grace towards him. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 25 to 29. He prays promises. Verses 25 to 29. And at first reading, follow with me, verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. I don't know about you, but whenever anyone, especially even David, tells God what to do, it makes you feel slightly uneasy. That is just ever so slightly wrong. God is God and David is just waxed lyrical about how good he has been. And now David sits in the driving seat ordering God around. I mean it can't be David just draped over his throne. Pointing his scepter. Telling God what to do. But in fact David tells himself why he prays what he does. Verse 27 is why he prays what he does. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, because of that, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. David prays what he does because God has said it will happen. It's really simple. Verse 25, do what you have said. Verse 26, for the glory of your name. In verse 27, and he prays it because of the confidence I now have before you because you promised it. Now do this and bless this house. Do your forever blessing. The prayer isn't a patronising David bossing around the divine. David's petition to God is simply and only because God has said it. David is in absolutely no doubt that this will happen. It's almost as if David is standing, looking down the timeline of history... And he doesn't know where, but he knows that somewhere there will be a king from his line on the throne. He trusts God's promises completely and prays them back to him because it's put in eternal ink. There is no typics in God's promises. There is no undo. There is no refresh. David prays for the king that God is promising to come. For the forever land, the new creation, the new kingdom that God has spoken about. And he does this with confidence, with courage, because it is God who said it. So how can we learn from verses 25 to 29? We pray to the same God, who has made the same promises, and we are just further down the promise line of history. We see who this King Jesus, this King is, and it's Jesus. And we pray for this forever kingdom that has begun. We pray God's promises back to him. When we pray, we pray with kingdom priorities in confidence that he will do it. Jesus himself tells us to pray for this kingdom. Matthew chapter six, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we pray like David for this kingdom to come. This divinely promised kingdom that has begun In the lives of every single Christian, we pray for this divinely promised kingdom to come. That's what it says. And I don't know about you, but I've always been slightly anxious or unsure about praying this. Obviously, I agree with the Bible, and I'm not questioning what Jesus has said. But when I look out on the world, my friends, my family, the people I play football with week in, week out, my school friends I still keep in touch with, people I see in Starbucks and Tesco, And I see people who are destined for an eternity in hell. Away from God. Do I really want to pray this prayer? Do I really want Jesus to come back soon? What about the people I love who I have prayed for for years? Do I not almost want Jesus to delay a little longer so more people can be saved? And I wrestled with this, really struggled with praying this, with what Jesus had said in the one hand, and my deep distress for those around me who don't know Jesus as their king and the other. And I know I'm not alone in thinking this. I had a student here actually ask me the very same question and I had no answer for him. But I think I have now. To pray that God's kingdom would be known here on earth like it is in heaven is to pray for Jesus' return where we would be in a sinless, unbroken, new creation, new kingdom, That I and we all long for. But it is also to pray that Jesus' kingdom would be known here today on earth. That essentially Jesus would plant his flag in someone else's soul and say mine. That Jesus would say mine, another kingdom soul. That Jesus would be king in another heart. This kingdom would be known here in the lives of one more person, moving forward slowly, one step at a time, taking more land. That's what we pray. We pray that this kingdom that will last forever be known in one more heart, in the lives of our friends and families, the people we rub shoulders with every single day, the people we rub shoulders with because God has placed us there, Or even bigger, we pray for cities, we pray for nations to know Jesus as king. We pray big prayers because God has promised to make his kingdom known here on earth as it is in heaven. And we do pray that other prayer that his kingdom will come, that will last forever. That we can be relieved of our brokenness and the brokenness of this world. That we can be away from the pain and grief that we are surrounded by. It's great. We pray the exact same prayers that David prays. We pray with confidence God's own prayers back to him because he has said it. It is going to come at some point. It's written in his story. There is no undo, there is no refresh, and there is no typics to God's plans. We stand after the cross before the fully realized kingdom. We are in a special place in history to know the king and wait the kingdom. It's like in the United States where the president is voted in. There's that waiting period before he takes office officially. That's where we are. We know the king and we're waiting for the fully realized kingdom that every Christian in here knows already. So when we pray, we pray with kingdom priorities not for us but that so god would be glorified in more hearts in more lives in the world that we know we pray with kingdom priorities and we pray for kingdom growth our mission partners who stand up here and we promise to pray for them who are off in far-flung lands telling people about this king jesus we pray for them our national mission partners, Emma and Amy who work for UCCF and our other national mission partners who are trying to make Jesus known on the campus of Scotland. We pray for God's kingdom to be known. Think of our small groups. How many names did we hear as we went through acts of members of our small groups, but their friends or their colleagues We pray they would know Jesus as their king and we pray for people who work alongside them and we pray for church planting across the country. We pray for people to plant churches to let areas of this country who do not know Jesus as king know him as king. When we pray, we pray with kingdom priorities. We pray in utter adulation of the grace shown to us and know that God has promised to bring more into the fold. Let's pray for his grace to be known in one more heart, expanding his kingdom. We should never have nothing to give thanks for or pray for. And this has been most helpful for me as I sit over my bowl of cereal in the morning. There is always something to pray for. When we pray, we pray with kingdom priorities. I'm going to close in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you that you are faithful forever. We thank you for the unbelievable grace that you have shown us. Made yourself known to us, people completely undeserving of your grace. Let us love you more. Let us love the Lord Jesus more. And let the people that we know who don't know you give us boldness and power to tell them about Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.